thanks for being here on time. Thanks for honoring the study of the Word of God. Thanks for always being eager participants and those who receive the Word. It's always a joy to be here to, to share with you what God is doing. Uh, Evan, while, uh, or maybe, uh, who's going to be, Jared, you're going to be back there? When folks are coming in, encourage them, if you would, to come up forward more rather than to be back there. Well, the problem is, if we don't, then everybody collects against the back wall, and it begins to be a little confusion. And I don't spit that much anymore. Uh, I'm using a different poly grip for my teeth that Bill Treby recommended. It does well for him. And so, you know, this isn't on recording yet, is it? It is? Could we start all over again? <laughs> keep it on. Keep it on. All right, well, let's start. Well, this morning we continue in our study of the gospel by using this little book, What is the Gospel is Our Guide. This morning we're in chapter 4, simply entitled Christ. Father, Father, how grateful we are. that you have done the greatest work, the greatest condescension, the greatest price. Father, that Jesus has suffered the greatest agony, the greatest terror, the greatest fear. By going to the cross for us. Suffering the unbridled, fury of your wrath, the wrath of a holy and passionate God against sin, and taking it into himself without any shield of grace, without any shield of anything. experiencing what all of your people should have experienced because of their sin, because of our sin. Father, this morning as we teach not only this lesson, but as we come together, Father, give us a much greater depth of understanding, appreciation, and experience of the cost to the Lord Jesus. The cost of what our sin did and what he had to pay. Father, for surely if we understand and experience a little bit more of this, it will be used by the Holy Spirit to more and more embolden us to say no to our sin, to pursue holiness, to walk godly, to resist temptation. Father, we can't help it. We have such a low view of this because it is in us not naturally to have the view of Calvary. You must give it to us by the Holy Spirit. 
You must show it to us in your word. So, Father, show us continually, especially as we dwell on that section of your word when Jesus went into Gethsemane and from Gethsemane to the cross, the enormity, the terror, the horror, the agony of what he went through because of our sin. Father, thank you that he did it and we never have to face that wrath from ever, ever more. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we continue, remember last week, we learned about what some may say is the worst news in all the world, and it is the worst news to some, but for others it's the beginning of the best news. For those who are rejecting the gospel, for those who will not be saved, for those who will not believe in the Son of God, this news of their sin and the consequent judgment of God's wrath upon them is the worst news that mankind will ever hear. But for those who are being moved upon by the Holy Spirit, for those whose hearts are being broken and pierced by the message of the gospel, this message of man's penalty because of his sin under the wrath of God, is the beginning of the best news that they will ever hear because it sets their hearts, it sets their focus, their desire to know what is the remedy, what is the solution, what can I do? This is typically the way it would be thought, of course. What can I do to be rescued from this worst penalty of all penalties of any activity? which is the eternal wrath of God against sin. And so this morning we come to what Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Remember some of the older folks in here? Remember he would say, the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is the crown jewel of the gospel. This morning we will talk about the crown jewel of the gospel. Let's turn, if you have your little booklet with you, to page 59 as I just read this opening paragraph from our little booklet here, page 59, if you have the book. And Greg Gilbert says, in relation to this terrible news that mankind is under the penalty of the wrath of God because of sin, he says, thank God the bad news of humanity, human sin and God's judgment is not the end of the story. Can you say Amen. Amen. We, we need to shout. Thank God this is not the end of the story. If the Bible had ended with Paul's declaration that the whole world will stand silence before the judgment throne of God, there would be no hope for us at all. There would be only despair. But there it is again. Thank God there is more. You are a sinner destined to be condemned. 
But God has acted to save sinners just like us. This is the, the good, good news of the gospel. So let's this morning discuss this great centerpiece of the gospel, God's way of salvation. God's way of salvation is not through a method, it's not a plan, it's not activities. God's way of salvation is through a man. God's way of salvation is through a man. God would redeem his fallen people through a man, the seed of the woman. You remember in Genesis 3, 15, the Lord is cursing the ground and he's putting forth a curse upon the earth and upon the people of the earth and upon Satan because of sin. And in verse 15, the Lord is speaking to Satan and he says this to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity, in other words, enemy, opposition. I will put, you hear hear what it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Hmm. between your seed and her seed. He, who is he? Who's he? Who's he in that verse? Remember your pronouns, he, she, they have to refer to a noun. Pronouns refer to nouns. Your seed and her seed, he. Right there we see that the word he refers to that last word, seed. So immediately we see that the Holy Spirit here, God is speaking not just about something, but he's speaking about someone right in the beginning of the pages of Genesis immediately after the fall. God begins to talk about a man who is coming. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, you're going to sting him and he's going to get hurt by this, but he is going to crush your head. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, why does God save us through a man? Because through a man came death. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So it is imperative and necessary that the salvation of the world come through a man. Why? Because the fall of the world came through a man. Therefore, God will send another man to redeem the world. Now, who is this man? This is the heart of the gospel. In Galatians 3.16, the apostle Paul tells us his identity. Now, remember, we just quoted from Genesis 3.15. Paul is speaking to the church in Galatia concerning the activity of they're saved, but now they think they have to begin to add certain religious activities to their walk in order to be kept saved. We are saved by a man. We are maintained by a man. We are kept by him. We are secured by him, and we're going all the way through, through one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul, referring to Genesis 3.15, he says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And so you see, the the theological understanding or the interpretation 
if you would, of Genesis 3.15. It's not something that we have made up. It is something that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us through the Apostle Paul, that in Genesis 3.15, God is already speaking about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. The seed of the woman is the divine son of God. Who is this man who will save us? And this is the crux of Christianity. This is the crux of the gospel. This is the very foundation of everything that we have in the gospel. And everything about the hope of our salvation is in this phrase, he is the divine son of God. This makes the gospel the gospel. This makes our salvation our salvation. This causes God's love to become love to us. This is our hope. This is everything. There's one issue upon which everything must stand in the gospel, in the, uh, in the Christian faith, and it is this. It is the divinity of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? How has he been introduced in the Bible? Well, I've just given you a few verses. There's just many, many more, but we've selected just a couple here. In John 1, 1, he is introduced as the Word of God. Remember what John 1, 1 says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who is this man? He is the eternal Word of God. In Mark 1, he is introduced as the divine Son of God. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, he is introduced as God's Son. And I've just quoted part of the verse for you. Born of a woman. Remember the seed of the woman in, Galatians, in Genesis 3.15. Born of a woman. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Who is this man? Who is this man? He is divine. He is God himself in himself, but not alone. He is God himself with the Father and God himself with the uh, Holy Spirit. He's part of the Trinity. In Hebrews 1.3, he is introduced as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's God. Who is this man? In Colossians 1.15, he is introduced as the image of the invisible God. And then finally, as far as our list is concerned, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, he in himself sums up everything about God for us and for our salvation. Now, this is the single most important fact of the gospel. The most single, single most important fact of the gospel is not all these other issues. It is this about Jesus Christ, his identity as God the Son living as God the man, the two natures, fully God, fully man, and one being. God becoming a man, dwelling among us, and paying the full price as a man for our sin. Why was he born? I think I just told you. I tend to kind of get ahead of myself. So who is this one? He's God the Son. You know, let's not equivocate on this. Let's not be weak in this. When we are sharing the gospel with others, oh, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. May I say again to you, 
It doesn't matter whether they believe or not. Now, doesn't it sound funny? It doesn't matter whether they believe or not. You push and press and insist on the issue. You insist on it. Because the Holy Spirit, for those whom he is saving, will convince their hearts of the truth of it. It's not up to us to try to prove anything. It's not up to us to try to talk people into anything. It's up to us to share the truth clearly, passionately, persistently. And if they don't believe it, it doesn't bother me whether they don't believe it. I don't care if you're a Hindu, Buddhist, or Kaboom, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter a fig to me who you are or what you are as far as your beliefs are concerned. It matters nothing. All that matters to me is that we press the issue that it is the Son of God himself who has gone to the cross for our sin. And the Holy Spirit <coughs> will take that truth and like a sledgehammer against an old dry rock, crush the hard heart and bring eternal life to people. So don't you be put off by all this philosophical and religious and all that kind of whatever. I don't care. I don't tell the person I don't care. It just doesn't affect me. You know, I don't care what you think. I have a truth to tell you, and I'm going to tell you the truth, and we're going to push through and not be diverted by all the what is. Who cares what that, I don't believe that, this and that. I know somebody else. Well, what about many ways and all that? Just press through with the truth. It's like driving the sword of truth deeper and deeper and penetrating those pieces of armor by the Holy Spirit, which would say don't do this and drive it forward more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, you will get by the Spirit's power into the heart of the person, and God will win the person. Now, don't go out of here and say, you know, Pastor Peter doesn't care if you believe in Jesus. I think you understand the context of what I'm saying here. Why was he born? Well, you get a glimpse of the answer in Genesis 3, 21. Remember, you just get a glimpse. Glimpse. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned, they ran off behind the cabbage patch? See, that's why you should never eat greens. It's, it's dangerous because that's where they hid. It's just okay. And so they're behind the cabbage patch with the asparagus and the broccoli over there. God knows that sin over there. The first thing that happens is, where are you, Adam? Remember in verse 9 of Genesis 3, where are you? God beginning to call them back, beginning to say, what's wrong? God beginning to say, look at yourself. There's something dreadfully wrong with you. Genesis 3, 14 to 15, God gives the curse, remember, because of sin. And he says, this is going to be a terrible thing, and the world is going to be this way. You're going to have all kind of pain. You're going to be, you know, thorns and thistles and sweat by your brow, whatever. You're going to crawl on the dirt and get your dirt in your eyes and your mouth, and the seed of the woman is coming. Oh, yeah, you're going to hurt him on the heel, but he's going to crush your head. And then in Genesis 3, 21, the Lord shows us how that is going to happen. He gives us a glimpse of the centrality of the cross, the shedding of the blood. And so what does the Lord do? He covers the man and the woman with a skins of an animal, 
or skin. He has to slay an innocent in order to cover their nakedness. Nakedness here is not only a physical thing, it is the lack or the loss of God's glory here. Often in the Bible, when they talk about nakedness, it's not so much a physical thing as a spiritual thing. It is the loss of the covering of God's glory. Therefore, we are all naked. Remember, Laodicea, you're naked. Well, of course, the people are not going around nude. They're going around as if the covering of God's glory has been removed. They're acting like this. And he says an innocent one is coming. Someone not polluted with sin is going to die in your place. And this is the reason Jesus was born. Why was he born? He was born to die for God's people because dying for God's people demonstrates in the greatest way the glory of God. He came to die. He came to die. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so you remember in Matthew 1, 21, the angel was telling Joseph, this is what you're going to name him. His name is going to be called what? Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. By dying, our sin will be washed away and forgiven because of the death of Jesus. And you say, well, wait a minute. <clears throat> why did he have to die? Someone's going to ask you, why? You know, when you look at the cross... The cross is the most gory thing imaginable. How many of you saw the passion of the Christ? I mean, that is a gory presentation. How many of you enjoyed just the goriness of it? I mean, it was like you sit there like, oh, oh. Sometimes you almost have to close your eyes. How many of you did like I, you know, kind of wincing? Weren't you like, oh, oh. When they had that cat of nine tails, boom, boom, and ripping the flesh out of this man, beating nails into his feet. And we all sit there like, oh, ooh, it makes our flesh crawl. Why was it so terrible? Why was it so gory? Why was it so hideous? Why? Because of our sin. Our sin. That's why Jesus underwent that kind of torture at the cross. And so someone may ask, what is wrong with God? Why does God need to exact such a terrible price? Now, you have to remember that the question is a question of ignorance. And even as we believers, if you have that question, why did God have to exact such a hideous, horrible price because of the hideousness and the horribleness of our sin. Remember last week we said we have a low view of sin. What I would encourage you to do is regularly ask God the Father, even as redeemed and forgiven members of his family, how does my sin impact you, Lord? And if we begin to get the kind of view of sin that God has, then we will have a much better understanding and appreciation as to the reason Jesus died this kind of death. In John 1.29, you remember John the Baptist has been 
waiting for the coming of the Messiah. He's been told there's one coming. And when he sees Jesus, he says what? In John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, when John uses the term, the phrase Lamb of God, he was referring to the Jewish sacrificial system which demanded the death of innocence for the people's sin. So it was a sacrificial system that it was a sacrificial system that he was referring to. The death of animals, thousands and millions of animals over thousands of years, daily, twice a day, and individually as people would come before the Lord, over and over and over and over, rivers and rivers and rivers of blood shed. And all of that blood totally, completely together. All it could do is put away sin or stop the judgment of God for at least another year. And it was all speaking, the entire sacrificial system, from the very beginning in Genesis 3.21 all the way to the cross before Jesus died, the sacrificial system and everything that it talked about and everything that it stood for and everything that it did was summed up in one man. One man. It all spoke of the coming death of just one man. Why death? Genesis 3, um, 2, 16 to 17, you remember the Lord had warned that death would be the result of disobedience. Well, why does God have to do that? Because God's passion for his glory because God's righteousness within himself, about himself, cannot, under any circumstance and to any point at all, allow anything contrary to himself to exist in his creation without dealing with it. If there is anything, even the smallest thing in creation, that is contrary to who God is and to who and how God is, his nature and character. God must deal with it. The passion of his love within himself for himself, the joy that he experiences within himself about himself, the rightness of who he is, demands that as passionate as he is in love, he must be as passionate in wrath to put away that which says he is not who he is. That's why. And so there must be a death to these things which come against the life of God and the light of God and the truth of God. God must put it to death. And you remember, death in this case doesn't mean just the cessation of life. It does in the natural world. But in the spiritual world, it means an eternal application of the fiery and furious wrath of God against sin and those who are sinners in the place called Gehenna or the fires of hell. That's the heart of the Christian religion, that Jesus has delivered us from that fate. God being right must punish all that is unright. Remember in Romans 1.18. For the righteousness of God is revealed against man's unrighteousness, you remember. 
And that punishment is eternal separation and wrath. Please get this and understand this. The punishment for sin is not just a lack of relationship or a broken relationship with God. That's the least of it. It is a broken relationship or the lack of no relationship with God that entails with it necessarily the fiery, furious wrath of God upon that person or those people with whom God is not in relationship. So it's much more when we share the gospel. It's good to say you need a relationship or you don't have a relationship with God. That's fine. But we must let the people know what does it mean not to have a relationship with Jesus. You see, if we're not careful, well, okay, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, tell me what else I've missed. I also haven't won the Powerball, you know. (laughs) Okay, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Very big deal, as if I believe in Jesus. No, there's something awesomely hideous about not having a relationship with Jesus. It's called hell. That's what it means not to have a relationship with Jesus. It's called hell. We need to be clear. We don't need to be yelling and screaming at people, being nasty, and all that kind of thing. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be clear about the ramifications of denying the Son of God and not believing of what he did. But thanks be to God, he is merciful, not leaving man in the grips of sin and death by providing a way of escape. Amen? In Hebrews 9.22, why did he die? Hebrews 9.22, referring to Leviticus 17.11, without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine the other day. And we were talking about the festivals, you know, and the uh, activities of the Jewish religion, Purim and Festival of Lights and so on, and the Levitical festivals. And exactly I can't remember. Oh, he asked me, it was last Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. He says, do you put ashes on yourself? I said, no, I don't need any. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, Christianity is about life and forgiveness. And so he he began to talk, and he didn't understand. He said, well, I thought this was something that you did in order. No. I said, it's not a meritorious system by putting an ash or not putting an ash or whatever. It's not a meritorious system. I said, just in Judaism. I said, the festivals were given by God's grace, inviting the people to come before the Lord and enjoy his presence, correct? These are times of celebration. Yes, they were very serious, some of them. The atonement, very serious, Passover. But there were times of celebration, celebrating the deliverance of the Lord, celebrating fellowshipping with God. There were times of celebration. And I said, you know, in the old system, until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., 
the way that you came before God in Judaism was how? And he said, through the sacrifices. Whoa. I said, well, what has happened since? Well, you know, we, we believe now, you know, we must repent, we pray, we fast, we do good works. I said, well, who changed the rules? He looked at me. Now, we didn't go any further that day, but that's fine. Let him think about who changed the rules. Who changed the rules? It's always been a sacrificial system. Who changed it, Lee? Where did they get it from? Who, who authorized that, you see? When you talk to your Jewish friends, speak up and be excited about Judaism. Oh, the word of God. But then ask salient questions. Well, if after 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed and you can't have the sacrificial system anymore, who decided and on what authority did they decide to change these things? Because your law in the Torah says you must have the shedding of blood, Leviticus 17, 11. It is demanded throughout Leviticus over and over and over and over again. The word blood, 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 blood. It is a bloody book. And it is the book that talks about how to have the sacrificial system. It talks about the sacrifices and the priests who make the sacrifices. That's that book, Leviticus. You see, Jesus was punished for our sin. Listen. He was beaten because of me. I want you to think about that. What you see at the cross should have been mine and should have been yours. He was beaten instead of us. He was nailed to the cross instead of us. He was. He endured the terrible, horrible wrath of God instead of us. He did. He died instead of us. And remember, when we say, and the Bible says, he died, if we said Peter died, oh, okay, fine. You know, that's kind of like, thank God he died because he was going through such pain. But when we say Jesus died, he's the Lord of life. The most horrible effect of sin to Jesus in relation to its effect upon creation was death. Was death. In John 11, when he comes to the funeral, if you would, of Lazarus, and he starts talking about what they will see, the glory of God and the whole issue of raising Lazarus from the dead, this man is angry. Jesus is angry. He is furious. He's burning up within himself. Why? Because the effect or the existence of death, which is absolutely contrary to God who is life and light and joy 
and peace and love. And I can just imagine Jesus gritting his teeth with the fury of a holy God looking into the darkness of that tomb to say, Death, you reign today, but in several days I will put you to death in my body of death. And I'll prove it this way. Lazarus, come forth. The Bible says he raised his voice. And I believe the whole mountain chain shook and quaked as the Son of God raised up a man who had already been dead four days and was already stinking in the grave because of putrefaction. But he faces death eyeball to eyeball and says, you will die. One of the biggest horrors to Jesus was to allow the cold and clammy clutches of sin, death, to envelop this God-man of life. Think about the worst thing that you could ever experience in this life. I have to put my hands in what? You ever dig down into a messy toilet, have to do that with your hands? Infinitely worse for the Lord Jesus. Infinitely worse. See, we don't get the meaning when it said he died our death. We don't see the darkness and the damnation and the horror and the hideousness of that activity of Jesus dying. The cross of Christ cross of Christ, and I say it that way, I don't just say the cross, it is the cross of Christ, where the Son of God as a man pays the price for our sin. That cross of Christ is the very center, heart, and power of the gospel. You know what the power of the gospel is? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God because of the cross that pays for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin as a sin bearer, the one who would bear our sins and carry them in his own body. So he would present himself to God as the culmination of all of the sin of all of God's people. Collectively, all of us, all of our sin rather, was in Christ. And if God did what he did on the day in Genesis 3 of letting the universe be corrupted from end to end until it is recreated because of one man's one disobedience, What must it have been when Jesus collected into himself all of the sin of all of God's people for all time into himself to pay the price? What must that have been? No wonder he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't call him father at that hour. He still says, my God, but the fellowship and the intimacy of the Son of God and the Father is not at that moment at least being experienced by this man. He is undergoing the immolation of the cross at its highest point.
heart of the church, the heart of the gospel is two-pronged. The center, heart, and power of the gospel is two-pronged. has two points on it. First point is the cross. The first point of the cross. But the second point, yes, Jesus did die. But. May I say it again? Yes, Jesus did die. But. He rose from the dead. God raised him up. You see, when Jesus died, the redemptive clock began to count down. And I heard this years ago, and I love it. I can just imagine Satan and his minions and his gang having a party in hell because the Son of God, the Messiah, is dead, and we have finally defeated God's purpose. And they hear the great clock of eternity. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, what's that mean? Four, three, two, one. Victory! Jesus rises from the dead. You see, he rises from the dead. I know that Satan was looking at that clock, thinking his day had come. But all of a sudden, the clock, which had been going forward, all of a sudden stopped and started going backward. And you thought Satan sweated because of the heat of hell. Satan sweated a whole lot more when that clock started going down because he realized, Ooh, we have done the wrong thing. Remember what the word says, that they had known they would never have crucified the Lord of glory, Paul says. You see, even Satan, he's stupid. He's deceived. Yes, he's great in power, but we had the greater power and the greater revelation. Let's read on page 69 of our little booklet. Page 69, we read these words, these words. Remember, two-pronged work of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God. Why? Because it is the very Son of God, the divine Son, the eternal Son, one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. He dies on the cross. That's the first prong. But the second prong is like unto it as far as its significance. It is the resurrection. If Christ had remained dead like any other savior or teacher or prophet, his death would have meant nothing more than yours or mine. Death's waves would have closed over him just as they did over every other human life. Every claim he made would have sunk into nothingness and humanity would still be without hope of being saved from sin. In the resurrection... All that Jesus accomplished in the cross now comes to us. In the resurrection, all that Jesus accomplished in the cross now comes to us. When he died, John 19, 30, he cried out in a voice, it is finished. I have fully, finally, and forever paid the price of God's wrath against me for my people's sin. And in him, each one of us had been placed in the heart and mind of God in some mysterious way. Galatians 
I have been crucified with Christ. And when he died, having paid the price, all of my sin, may I repeat that word, all of my sin, Colossians 1.13 for 213 John 1 7 all of my sin was condemned and dealt with and then when he rose from the dead all of us rose in him to have eternal life you see in his death our sin was judged and in his resurrection we were declared as God's right people Romans 4 25 Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The great central news of the gospel. Let's share this with joy. Let's share this with anticipation. Let's share this with an absolute assurance that every time we share the gospel, God will touch hearts and anticipate someone being saved. Spurgeon asked his students, or a particular student, do you really believe that every time you preach, someone's going to be saved? The man said, no, no. Well, then be it according to your faith. We believe every time we preach and teach the gospel, someone will be saved. Now, whether they are or not is God's work, but we believe the gospel that strongly. So as we go out into the world and share the gospel, let's share it with this. Someone is going to be saved as I faithfully share the word of life. Someone is going to be saved. Don't just say, oh, I hope they will. Oh, I don't know. No, you and I are sharing the most powerful message that sinful and dead people can ever hear. There is only one message that they can hear, only one message that they need to hear, and that is this, the gospel. They don't need to hear anything else. They need to hear the gospel, the power of the gospel. Jesus, FBI died for me, because of me, instead of me. But he rose from the dead so that I and you together, having been forgiven because of his death, paid for our pri uh, the price of our sin, we can be justified and we are, and then we can be clothed with the very righteousness of the Son of God forever and ever. Next week, we'll talk about our response to this gospel. Thank you.